Nightwing battles a supervillain who will give you anything you want for a price. Learn about Carol Danvers' time as a secret agent in Miss Marvel Volume 6 Ascension. And Superman and Lex Luthor go to Apocalypse in Superman Volume 6 Imperious Lex Straight Ahead. Welcome to the Classy Comics Podcast, where we search for the best comics in the universe. From Boise, Idaho, here is your host, Adam Graham. Well, we start out with Nightwing Volume 6, The Untouchable, where Sam Humphreys came on as the writer of Nightwing, replacing Tim Seeley. We found out how I thought Tim Seeley did working on Green Lanterns, We'll talk about that as we go. The trade collects issues 35 to 43, with only the first seven issues being written by Humphreys. That is the entirety of the story, The Untouchable. And essentially, we meet a villain known as The Judge. The Judge is a villain that has haunted Nightwing his entire career, even though we really haven't seen him before. It's kind of an untold tale that uh, this uh, character has twice eluded Nightwing, and the body count is going up. The judge has a really interesting gimmick. Essentially, he plays into man's uh, corruption, the corruptibility, and the idea that people's secret desires can be exploited by promising them, I will give you what you want. You just have to do me one favor and you'll have it. And when they make the deal, he gives them this gold chip and they uh, will follow his uh, command as part of the deal. And essentially, he leads a reign of chaos on Bloodhaven. And one great example of that is just in the first issue of the run, where Nightwing is shot by Detective Sabota. And the judge is able to ascertain that her secret desire is that her daughter never become a police officer. And uh, if uh, Sabota does as he asks, the deal is that will never happen for her daughter. The mayor of Bloodhaven had actually started leading an anti-Notwing crusade after the city had actually promoted Notwing's presence as a reason to come there. The reason for that is that an old friend of uh, Notwing's, who had been an ex-vigilante and now owned a couple casinos, had agreed to a deal with the judge, with the judge promising her that her actions would increase her prominence and the uh, strength of her business and give her what she wanted. And so she leaned on the mayor to go after Notwing. However, the judge also had gone to the mayor's assistant and promised her political prominence. And all she had to do to get that was to uh, give incriminating information on the mayor. 
And then he confronts the mayor with this information and gets the mayor to confess and to commit suicide. And the son of a villain named the Guppy uh, kills his own uh, father, who is also a fish mutant, with the judge's promise of uh, prominence and being respected. Now, of course, in all of these cases, they didn't know what exactly they were going to have to do. Uh, They just knew that they would get what they wanted, And uh, when they took the gold coin, they submitted to whatever the judge wanted them to do. Now, there are a lot of criticisms of this uh, villain out there, and I think some of them are legitimate. His His plans, well, he doesn't seem to have an actual plan. He just seems to be fritting about finding ways to uh, cause chaos. But I don't know how much of a criticism that can legitimately be, because in many ways, in the course of this, uh, Dick Grayson describes him as the devil, or as a type of that. And uh, I think that sort of seeming random chaos and destruction uh, really does uh, fit as a motive. I do think it's probably a bigger criticism of unclear origins. We know that the judge is actually uh, blind, and uh, we know, but the origin story he tells is really fanciful. And even un- there's no magical or scientific way that it makes sense. And I do think the judge is a little overpowered uh, for a Nightwing villain. And when you have an overpowered villain, you risk having the defeat of the villain seem a bit cheap or not believable. I don't think it's totally that way, but I don't think the defeat is necess- the way it plays out is necessarily worse, worth the buildup. But there's also a lot I like about this villain. I like his design. Um, I think he is very thought-provoking and is an interesting character. I just would like to see maybe a little bit more of the logical questions addressed. Uh, there are some other elements that are introduced in this uh, story. There's the League of Limousine uh, Assassins, and I don't quite know what to make of them. They aren't so ridiculous to be comical, but it's also hard to take them uh, seriously. Uh, Because essentially, there are a bunch of hitmen who drive around in limousines until they're called out on a job, thus the League of Limousines Assassins. It comes off as just a little bit pretentious. As well as a bit foolhardy. If I lived in a world where the League of Assassins were a thing... I don't think I would be ripping off their name. The consequences for that cannot be good. In addition, we have another job given to uh, Dick Grayson with uh, Dick deciding he doesn't want to work for anybody and he actually has a reasonable rationale uh, for wanting to have some work. It's that he doesn't want to Nightwing all the time. And so he decides to open his own fitness studio and use the last of his money to do that. And to me, this seems like a very ill-advised choice for a superhero. 
it's like I've you you know you already as a superhero work all day and night you know whenever the the need for uh, justice calls. Uh, do you have any idea how our small business person works to establish their uh, no-name uh, studio? It's one of those ideas that seem doomed to failure because essentially you have to, if you're going to make a small business work, be dedicated to it fully and promoting it and being around reliably. And in this story, he predictably gets into trouble for not being able to show up for class on time. So I will not be surprised when I hear that, uh, oh, Dick Grayson used to have a studio, but it went bankrupt. Now, one thing I will say is that the art on this story is fantastic. Uh, Bernard uh, Chang just does an outstanding job. And there are just so many great shots and angles and ways that scenes are framed that really, to me, sells the story. I think the writing on this is fine, but the art is just superb. I do think as a plot arc, this probably goes on too long, at least an issue. Uh, this is a seven-issue story, and six is the length of a pretty good-sized story. I think if you've got seven, you've got to have more to it than we have in this. And there are some things that could be cut, like there is uh, a somewhat gratuitous scene of Notwing coming in on a couple in bed after adultery. That's gratuitous and could easily be cut. In addition to the main story, we have two one-shots, which uh, I think are actually pretty interesting. The first is the Crimson Kabuki, and it opens with Dick Grayson in Japan, and essentially it's a pretty simple story of him fighting this evil martial arts uh, cult and going in to rescue Damien, who'd been captured before. Uh, the art by Jorge Corona is is outstanding. It's different than what you got from Chang in the previous volume, but it really does fit the sort of martial arts uh, pastiche that they're going for with this comic. Uh, at the uh, uh, at the same time, uh, I think a special feature of the stories, as I was reading through it, it seemed a bit over dramatic and over the top. Uh, but then I realized that Dick Grayson wasn't actually narrating the story. That it was Damien uh, narrating the story. And uh, and uh, what he had said at the beginning, that uh, they had thought he was an orphan, but he had a brother. And it turns out he was talking about uh, Dick. And I found that a really uh, sweet twist on this, and just some great action. So I enjoyed... Uh, the Crimson Kabuki. Uh, and then uh, the next one is The Noble, The Obnoxious, and The Inept. And uh, essentially, uh, Dick Grayson was deciding to experiment with this whole idea of relaxing at home and binging Netflix uh, when he got uh, a text from both uh, Damien and uh, from Arsenal. Uh, advising him that they needed help on cases. And when he took a look at it, he saw that Roy Harper and Damian Wayne, their cases connected, so he could really quickly help them out. But he 
uh, in the process of just trying to rush through this, uh, he actually kind of uh, rushes in and uh, makes a mistake, and then they have to pull together to save Gotham from uh, the League of Assassins. And uh, this one, the way that it plays out is nice, and it's pretty cool. And it's a good one-and-done story. And I like the way that it ends, because uh, they complete the mission, and they're actually grateful to him, both Roy and Damien, for his help and uh, for the team up overall. And they're like, if there's anything that we can do for you, just name it. And the next thing we know, we see Roy and Damien fighting in Bloodhaven. And you kind of imagine at that point that uh, they are patrolling Bloodhaven so he can take a night off and watch uh, Netflix. But instead, he's right there along with them enjoying the team up. And I think it's an interesting turn. Because while binging Netflix may make a lot of people happy, I don't think Dick Grayson is one of them. He is a very gregarious and outgoing person. And so what makes him uh, recharged and happy is hanging out with his friends and his brother, even if they're working. And I like that. It's a good character point. And it uh, ties into what he said at the start of the uh issue because he had this great uh, line i want to be bruce but i don't want to be bruce he admires uh, what bruce wayne does and his courage and the way he uh, carries himself but he, and he all the things he's accomplished but he doesn't want to be this brooding lone figure and I think this issue highlights just the difference of that and why he'll never be Batman, or at least if he's Batman, Batman's going to be very different than he is as uh, Bruce Wayne. Overall, while I did have some issues with the seven-part run, the art was great, the villain was intriguing, if not totally well-developed, and the two additional issues were just a lot of fun to read. So I'll give the entire collection Nightwing Volume 6 The Untouchable, a rating of somewhat classy. Next up, we have Miss Marvel Volume 6 Ascension. Now, Volume 5 ended with her threatening someone and demanding to know about Ascension. Uh, so Volume 6 actually opens with a team-up between her and Spider-Man in Miss Marvel Annual Number 1, where uh, Spider-Man's swinging through the city, and Miss Marvel tries to arrest him for being an unregistered hero. And they get into a fight, and uh, they actually land on a construction zone and mess stuff up. And a construction worker delivers this great line. Why do we ever bother constructing stuff in this city? Uh, and uh, they have a lot of great back and forth and patter. Uh, where uh, uh, where she says she's the head of the Mighty Avengers, and Spidey says, I'm in the Avengers too. And she's like, this is, 
you're not in the official Avengers. You are in a band of unregistered vigilantes. And he's like, he goes, unregistered vigilantes might be a good name for a band. And it just goes back and forth. It's great banter and talking smack and one-upmanship in a way that is fun in an old style way you know rather than sort of the bitter civil war uh style that had happened in other books however while they're doing this a bunch of robots start stomping the city and so they have to team up and uh spotty actually goes and finds out what's going on while she's fighting a bunch of the robots and there is this businessman named Stuart Cavenger who has actually uploaded his consciousness onto the internet and left behind android versions that of himself that actually represent different aspects uh, of his personality separated from one another and what's happened is the Stuart that is the most aggressive and ambitious has been launching the robots onto the city, and Spotty takes care of that and deals with it. And Miss Marvel arrives to talk to the head of the ambitious robot. And probably the least cool thing about this uh, comic happens when Spidey says uh, to tell her that he'll tell Wolverine that he got to second base with her. I'm like, okay, seriously? It's like what I said back in Volume 3 as a review. This is high school stuff. Then we get to Miss Marvel uh, slash the Storyteller number one. And this is a one-shot. Again, we talked about the Storyteller, I think it was back in the Volume 2 review in Miss Marvel special number one. Uh, And uh, Miss Marvel is fighting AIM and finds out that they know where Gavin is. And uh, she flies out to where Gavin has these kids, and they're on an island, and they're playing pirates. And uh, she comes to warn Gavin to tell him to be safe, and he he perceives that she wants more from him. Uh, at least on a subconscious level, because of her desire to be best of the best. And so Gavin actually creates a city where she is the best of the best, and is hailed as the great hero, and then a flying pirate ship comes into the midst of the city. And uh, Miss Marvel is changed into a pirate version of her costume. It's a really fun and imaginative story. However, Gavin faces some uh, realizations, such as one of the kids who is uh, the one who he considers his best friend uh, really feels uncomfortable and like he's being held hostage away from his friends and family. And we learn Gavin's backstory and how he got these powers, and it's because his parents were AIM scientists, and they decided to experiment on him. So it's a sad uh, backstory, but uh, it's not uh, told in a way that's grim, dark, or anything, but in a way that does make the character sympathetic. Gavin does go ahead and transport Miss Marvel and Rick back to New York, and when Miss Marvel returns to where the island had been, it's gone, and we learn that Gavin is 
uh, on the moon and has imagined his own little oxygen bubble as part of his uh, storyteller powers. It's a fun story, uh, and I really did enjoy Gavin, and it was good to revisit him. All right, so that leads us into the actual Miss Marvel issues. Uh, and it starts out with issue 33, Family. And uh, Miss Marvel learns that her father is dying and goes to uh, visit him and uh, is immediately confronted by uh, her mother and is really chewed out by her. And she goes in to see her father, who is on the um, oxygen machines, and she's trying to conjure up positive memories uh, because so much of her memories, so much of her emotions, uh, attachments of her life, were taken by Rogue. It was a side effect. And it's really a sad thing because she looks at him and she says, all I can really remember is you yelling at me. And we, of course, did see, you know, back at you, even in the 1970s, a rocky relationship with her father was part of her character. And it's just so sad and tragic how it plays out here. And she goes to leave, and her mother is started to be apologetic and is like, don't go because of what I said. I'm sorry. And she says, don't think that uh, the reason I'm going is because of what you said. Uh, but she had other things to take care of. And uh, she didn't use her powers to fly in here and is not actually using her powers through the story that we see through the rest of the book, though it's not explained. And it's a tragic situation, It does, and you do really feel for her as she goes through that. And we were really, at the end of the issue, given this twist that she says that in some ways the lack of emotions and the lack of memory may be a blessing, because if I love this piece, these people as much as I'm supposed to, I couldn't do what I have to do right now. And we learn at the end of the issue that that is to kill Norman Osborn, which is a really stunning uh, conclusion, not followed up on in this book, though I'm sure we'll uh, pick up on it in uh, Dark Rain. Then we get into the final three issues in this one, uh, issues 34 through 36, Secret Agent Danvers. And it opens with her getting the chance to fly an experimental uh, airplane built by Tony Stark. And her plane goes down, and she is uh, captured by an enemy who wants her to tell him everything she knows about Ascension. And her leg had been broken, and they had set it. She starts out just giving name, rank, and serial number. And that's when they start to do uh, torture on her. And I have to admit that these really felt over the top in issue 34 and a bit uh, uncomfortable. She endures hours of torture until the guy reveals uh, that 
he knows that she never knew about Ascension and then breaks her arm, uh, but in the process uh, releases the arm from uh, from its cuff and then she is able to beat him with her broken arm and overcome another guard and escape with a stolen robe with a broken arm and broken leg. And then we learn at the start of issue 35 that uh, she that the sledgehammer that she used as a crutch she was able to use her good arm to actually threaten someone with the sledgehammer as a weapon and wield it. Um, unless you're Thor, I don't think that's going to work. And keep in mind, this is before she got her powers. You know, if she's got her powers, sure, Miss Marvel can do that. But this portion of the story reads like someone who's been writing comic book heroes for so long that they don't really have any idea how real people actually work anymore. But at any rate, she escapes with, uh, and is taken out uh, and is will not be allowed to fly any longer, so she joins up with Air Force Intelligence. And there are some nice scenes showing her rebuilding herself becoming stronger and more proficient and ready for work in Air Force Intelligence. And eventually, she and her partner, Rossi, team up to go after a freelance American agent named Mason. And they have a chase, there's an explosion, and Rossi is apparently killed and presumed dead in action. And at the start of issue 35, uh, Carol visits Rossi's day grave and is met by Mason. And then Rossi arrives in a black limousine and things are coming to head with Ascension. Now, I will mention a couple criticisms of these issues that are technical stuff that really should have been caught uh, in issues uh, 34 and 35. In particular, uh, the story can't seem to keep straight what Carol's rank is because she's inter- uh, identified in the story as a major, major Danvers, but in the intro bits, uh, she is identified as Captain Danvers. Also, the way the intros work is they decided that since we're talking about a secret agent, we would uh, have our story update shown as a memo. And, uh, of course, with uh, certain details redacted. And uh, they just uh, randomly redacted words. You know, uh, an official memo is redacted for national security things, but they would redact, like, um, her name and what uh, injuries she suffered. They would include one and redact the other. I mean, it was trying to be stylized, but it actually ends up looking just a bit silly. But this leads into issue 36, where she visits uh, Robot Man, which is actually the first time her old team from Operation Galactic Storm has appeared, and asks his help. And then we learn of her going on a raid uh, near a naval ship to reclaim a lockbox from the CIA. And in fact, she's uh, 
captures a CIA agent and holds a gun to his head to threaten him to bring out the uh, lockbox. However, at that point, Spider-Man appears and uh, it just, everything breaks out into confusion. And Spotty asks why she's not using her powers, including flight. And she says that she still has her powers, but she won't use them. And Spotty's like, are you trying to win a bet or something? And you just literally have madness ensuing. I think it is the fun type of madness, though, as they do end up getting the lockbox. And uh, Carol asks uh, Spotty to put it in a bus locker on a certain day. And he agrees to do it, provided she gives him a date. And she agrees because she doesn't have much choice. And that's where the book ends. Now, that means we end with an inkplate story. I think, though, in many ways, this is leading into Dark Rain, which the next book is. And it's a weird thing with Miss Marvel, where even if we don't have an event that is uh, dominating Marvel at the moment, she has to have the stories that lead into the event. I had some uh, problems with this book. Um, I, I think I've detailed them uh, pretty well with uh, just, a, you know, little minor things and then the bigger things in issue 34. But I did like the Spidey issues and I liked the Storyteller issue and I like that we get some insight into her as a character. So I, I will definitely say this is... Again, not a book for kids, but I will give Miss Marvel Volume 6 Ascension a rating of somewhat classy. I don't really have a problem with not having the end of the story. Uh, sometimes the way stories are told, it just doesn't fit within the pages of a trade paperback. And that's perfectly fine. But I think there's a good bit of build-up and background uh, put into place that it definitely does make me interested to read Volume 7. Now we turn to Superman Volume 6, Imperious Lex. And I'm honestly not sure why they're uh, punning off of Namor the Submariner's famous uh, catchphrase. But at any rate, this book collects issues 33 through 36 and 39 through 41, with issues 38... Uh, and 37 of Superman being in the Super Sons of the Future book we've already reviewed. So the book begins with the titular Imperious Lex storyline. And as the story opens, things are going poorly on Apocalypse. And they are ready to recall Lex Luthor, who'd been on the planet, uh, back during the New 52. Meanwhile, on Earth... Luthor and Superman have started to have regular team-ups where they'll go out and fight crime. And while things, just if you read the words, look like they're going fine, there's some uh, trouble under the surface and some real awkwardness. And I love the way that Doug uh, Mankey, the penciler, kind of just captures uh, the... Uh, awkwardness there's one scene just where they're looking at each other where you can tell it's not uh, at ease 
And uh, there are some things that, that Luthor does in the course of them making this capture together. Uh, after he does something that's a little bit risky that Superman didn't really want him to do. And then he offers to go ahead and answer the police's questions and then offers for any people who have gathered nearby to pose for selfies with them. At any rate, Luthor is recalled to Apocalypse. And Luthor sends out a message on a frequency that only a Kryptonian could hear telling Superman to come immediately, but offering no details as to why. However, Clark Kent had been getting ready to go out with his family, and it was family night, and Luthor had made these sort of requests before, like in uh, Superman responds and arrives and finds that uh, Luthor made a device that he wanted to show off. So Superman ignores it, and uh, Luthor gets more forceful. Uh, actually going ahead and sending a boom tube to take Superman to Apocalypse. And uh, it's a bit imprecise as it also takes Lois and John there. On Apocalypse, the uh, leaders uh, there who uh, were trying to bring order to the planet after Darkseid had died in a previous event, I believe back in the New 52 as well, were convinced that Luthor should be their ruler. However, Luthor uh, tries to convince them that Superman is actually the one that their prophecies refer to. Now, why Luthor is doing this and trying to avoid uh, being made the absolute uh, despotic ruler of a technologically advanced regime... I honestly don't know, and that's one of my big complaints. I don't understand his motivation for doing this uh, in terms of trying to slough this off on Superman or avoiding taking it over himself. I understand he had had some things he wanted to do back on Earth, but still, this just doesn't quite seem uh, justified. But at any rate, uh, because uh, Luthor had previously led them to believe that he was the one who was prophesied, they turn on them and Superman and Luthor both have to fly away. Now, I will say my wife just brought up a, a good point that Luthor is a bit of a control freak and also might be concerned about potential assassination attempts and whether he could actually hold control of this. Though, uh, doubting his own abilities or saying something might be too hard for him doesn't seem quite in character for Luther either. Meanwhile, Lois gets captured by the Furies, the female warriors headed by Granny Goodness. Now, Granny seems to be under the impression that Darkseid is really alive and that they can bring Darkseid back somehow. However, after Lois is captured, the Furies are attacked by a monster. And the Furies, when they get attacked, one of them loses their gun. Lois picks it up and uses it to help fight the monster, and then really shows uh, some strength under fire. And when one of the Furies is killed in the uh, course of the monster attack, Lois is made a new fury to replace the old one and given her armor and weaponry. 
Meanwhile, John runs into a pack of dogs who are about to be eaten, and he saves these wild dogs, and everything starts to really converge. Both the Furies under uh, Granny Goodness, Superman, and Luthor, who ends up, I believe, unconscious for a lot of this, and John and the dogs, and it becomes a melee. And, of course, uh, when Lois sees Superman... She joins him and leaves the Furies behind. And for that, she gets attacked by one of the Furies, who says, You belittle the progress of our sex in caring for these men. Granny meant for you to be more. You never had the strength of a Fury. But Lois hits her back and says, Sorry you feel that way, sister. But my love is not weakness. And, and caring for others never makes us small. And you, of all people, do not get to lecture me on who I am. And what's epic about that is she delivers that whole speech while taking out four furies. Uh, it's just an awesome uh, page in this book. I really love it. And at the end of the battle, after the son of Darkseid, Calabash, is dealt with, Superman agrees to become Lord of Apocalypse. Sort of. There's an epic sequence where Superman delivers like a coronation address. And it's all about liberty and freedom and second chances. And it concludes with truth and justice for all. And then Superman gives the woman Andorra a charge to assemble the governors of the regions and together find a way to govern each other according to the people's needs. And they'll call Superman back if they ever need him. And you're essentially taking a people who have none, know nothing but the most evil despotism imaginable and saying, okay, figure out your own government and call me if you run into any problems. I'm sure this will work out fantastically. And the story ends with uh, Superman returning Lex to his uh, corporate headquarters. Lex being really miffed at Superman, who will answer anybody's call for help, except for his when he really needs it. Superman says that their adventure on Apocalypse and his betrayal showed the danger of trusting a hypocrite. But that doesn't really answer why he didn't respond. Because he had no way of knowing that that was going to happen. I think that there is really a fundamental personality uh, difference between Luthor and Superman. And throughout the Luthor as a hero sort of uh, stories, we've seen a lot of reasons to doubt his morality as well as his motivations. In this one, he seems to be pretty concerned about what other thinks and building up his own image. And for Superman, that just confirms his worst fears. At any rate, we then move on to a one-parter called Goodnight Moon. Uh, now, in uh, Goodnight Moon, we get a fight between Superman and the Demolition Crew, and they are not major supervillains. This really just takes about three pages. Because we've got to get a fight if it's a Superman book. But really, the the issue is about 
uh, Superman meeting kids with cancer and spending time with them. And he takes them up to the JLA uh, watchtower. And it's a really sweet story. Uh, there is this uh, one kid who wants to get um, a picture of Batman smiling, which, you know, in uh, the modern DC universe just isn't going to happen. And there's this cute part where this kid leans down and whispers in his ear and uh, Batman smiles and every one of the kids pulls out phones and takes pictures and um, the kid explains that he told Batman a joke. And Batman just kind of is shrugging and saying, it was funny. I mean, it's just a really uh, sweet story where Superman takes kids with cancer out on an adventure because that's something that Superman would do. Uh, And then this brings us to the last story in the book. And this one is The Last Day. And uh, it finds uh, Superman at the Fortress of Solitude and he's joined by John. And he remarks that Uh, I know that just getting to be here makes me the luckiest boy alive. And Superman says, then you no doubt know the importance of today. The two concepts are actually not at all related. And it's actually the day that, uh, or the anniversary of the day that Krypton exploded. But we have this sequence where John is, uh, joking around about what they're there for. And then at the end, he said, Dad, I'm messing with you. Of course I know. It's the anniversary of the day our home planet Krypton exploded. And he says it with this smile on his face, which doesn't make sense at all. It's like, oh yeah, Dad, it's the day that you became an orphan. And our entire species was nearly exterminated completely. I should note that this issue is not written by Peter Thomasay, the main writer of Superman at this point. This is written by James Robinson. And so a lot of the dialogue feels really, really clunky and uh, out of place. But in the midst of this uh, reverie, it turns out that Superman has programmed the fortress uh, to scan the stars and alert him if there's another planet that's about to be blown up. And John insists he wants to go along, and so they uh, fly out there uh, to this planet to rescue them. And there is some really nice artwork as they are flying to the planet. I really uh, enjoy the artwork on uh, that part of the story. However, when they arrive on the planet, Gallimane, Superman arrives to tell them that their planet's destruction is imminent, but that he's sure that he can work out a way to save them. Uh, They respond that, thank you very much, but they would rather not be saved because they have a religious belief that uh, essentially if it's the will of their god that they die, then they should just go ahead and die. Superman responds respectfully to their uh, religious belief with an argument that will change their minds. You can't be serious! That's insane! Surprisingly, they don't react well to that. 
as they ask Superman to leave their planet. And as he persists, they threaten that they're going to take away his superpowers and force him to share their fate as they believe that he's a monster come to change uh, them. Superman responds, You think you can depower me? I've scanned your planet. Unless you have kryptonite, a red sun, or magic with you, or if you even know what that is, and the high priest informs him that indeed they know what magic is. And they have something like that, in that uh, they are able to, as an entire race, combine their faith into a power, which ultimately depowers him and puts him into a world of hurt. However, he is rescued by Cain, a citizen of the planet. And Cain takes him to his underground lair, and the first issue of the two-parter ends with Cain saying, So, let's save this world together, shall we? And so with that ending, you expect that in the second part of the comic, we will see them save the world. Uh, But Superman, when they get down to his laboratory, and they get a lot of text and a lot of backstory points out that there is nothing in this lab that they could use to save the planet. And Kane says, I misspoke. The planet is beyond saving. Too far gone, too little done. So essentially, you uh, said, let's save the planet. You had him, as a writer, you had him say that so that you would have a good cliffhanger for the first part even though he knew the planet couldn't be saved. Kane's plan is to send him and his children to another world, where they will survive after this planet uh, has uh, blown up. However, before that happens, the militia attacks and Kane is killed, but Superman's powers return. And at this point, the inhabitants decide to stand down. That whole monster who was going to change us, has to die thing, uh, they just decided to go ahead and forget about that. Superman stays behind and does try to persuade them to let him try and save them right up until the moment the planet explodes. And because he's Superman, he's fine and he survives. And that was, other than the artwork when they were coming there, that was my favorite part of the story because that felt the most like Superman. This two-part story really had a lot of problems. Uh, First of all, the idea of a species facing extinction but uh, refusing to be rescued was used in uh, the Green Lanterns book that we reviewed a couple weeks back. And it was really too soon for a similar concept. Superman acts out of character in this book a lot as a plot device. I mean, the whole way that he approached them and uh, the way that when they became upset and agitated, he just escalated the situation. That's not how Superman would act. You know, if this was a Guy Gardner story... Maybe I could see Guy Gardner being that arrogant and hot-headed. But this is just not the way Superman acts. The way Superman acted that way so he would be depowered so that Kane would rescue him. And the worst or one of the worst parts of the story is that Superman accomplishes less than nothing. 
The planet was going to blow up before, but Cain was going to escape with his children and be able to uh, raise them. Now uh, Cain's children get to be orphans. Heck of a job there. And I think the story, it's trying to make an argument about religion, but it makes a pretty poor argument and doesn't actually say anything interesting. Because these people uh, believed in God and their decision to allow the planet to just be blown up was made on that basis, uh, John uh, wonders whether he should believe in God. And Superman's answer is, Honestly, John, I've seen too much uh, not to believe in something, but this is the important part, something is not everything. And that's the message. It's really weak and non-committal. So guest writer James Robinson really brings down the quality of the whole book. I mean, I think that while the first two stories weren't perfect, I did enjoy them. But for me, this one was just so bad. And it's probably the first time since... Uh, the DC Rebirth event that I've read Superman and felt that the writer didn't really get the character uh, because this isn't the regular Superman writer. So overall, I'm going to give the book a rating of not classy, though your mileage may vary uh, depending on how much the quality of this story brings down the rest of the book. While I felt the Nightwing uh, stories that weren't part of the big arc actually made the book better, this one just made it worse. So, all right. So, uh, to recap, we gave Nightwing Volume 6, The Untouchable, a rating of somewhat classy. The villain was interesting, even though they could have done some different development stuff. And I liked the one-parters and how they really explored the relationship between Damien and uh, Dick. I also gave Miss Marvel Volume 6 Ascension a rating of somewhat classy. There are a whole variety of different styles in here with some pretty fun issues, as well as a suspension-building spy story that set the stage for Volume 7. Though I did think one issue did go a little bit over the top with some of the violence, uh, I still enjoyed this and so give it a rating of somewhat classy. And we're going to give Superman Volume 6 Imperious Lex a rating of somewhat classy. The first two stories are pretty good, but the last one is a stinker that hurts the overall quality of the book. All right, well, that's all for now. If you do have a comment, email it to me, ClassyComicsGuy at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at ClassyComicsGuy. And uh, be sure and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.